Alex Mozed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Today, we have a win for the incumbents, actually, really a, a regulatory, uh, you know, government, government uh, intervention over in Australia. We're going to get to that in a second here. Uh, but first off, not really monopoly status yet, but certainly I think uh, will be well on its way to, to at least accomplish platform conglomerate status in relatively short order here is Roblox. Roblox has probably run <laughs> arguably one of the most suspenseful IPO, now it's a, actually a direct listing, uh, processes ever. We were dangled and teased with a Roblox IPO at the end of 2020. Then it was now a direct listing, which was supposed to happen in February. And now it looks like it's going to be March. And the story just keeps getting juicier and juicier. This was easily my favorite platform IPO pick of 2020, hands down. That was a no-brainer. It was supposed to be like $8 billion. I was, I was over the moon. Uh, still, I am very bullish on the company. We'll see where the direct listing nets out, though. But Roblox says revenue was higher than previously reported and pushes direct listing to March. Okay. You know, you read through this CNBC article and it says here, we have identified a material weakness in our internal control over financial reporting, which resulted in our restatement of financial statements for the years ending, you know, for basically the past few years. They said we have a material weakness in our internal controls over financial reporting. We had heard that the SEC was looking into how they were handling revenue recognition. If you don't remember or if you're not familiar, basically Roblox has these two classifications. They have essentially kind of what they call uh, bookings. So when people purchase Roblox bucks, Robux, um, their digital currency, uh, <clears throat> they report that. But that isn't considered revenue, right? Because essentially, think of it as just transferring you know, say USD into Robux, and it's it's just a currency, but that's why Roblox is cash flowing, right? They're just spinning off so much cash because guess what? Someone's paying them money, uh, let's say US dollars here to purchase Robux, which is just made out of thin air. It's Roblox digital currency. So their free cash flow is uh, phenomenal um, for this reason. But Roblox didn't want to report that as revenue, right? And so they, they went into a lot of this. We covered it uh, in depth when we were first covering their IPO, you know, end of 2020. And so revenue is when you actually consume the Robux, right? When you, when you buy that cape or that item or whatever it is with your Robux, right? We had heard that, that their revenue recognition protocol was coming under scrutiny by the SEC. Um, turns out that was correct, but in the other direction, not that they had overstated their revenue, actually that they had understated their revenue. So, you know, I don't know, the CNBC article left me wanting. So we dove into their actual amendment that they made and filed with the SEC. And, and here is the juice. Page 33, my lucky number. Um, so here's this you know, we have identified a material weakness and then we restated all of our stuff, right? And you're like, well, what does that mean, material weakness? It's just, this is all just a bunch of gibberish. 
And here, a material weakness, if you want the definition, a material weakness is a deficiency in our internal controls over financial reporting. You're like, okay, well, what did you guys actually mess up here? What was the problem? And so finally, they get to it. Uh, the material weakness was due to ineffective controls over the identification of the performance obligations in our revenue recognition methodology that resulted in an error where we previously identified a single performance obligation to provide an integrated and enhanced online experience via hosting services performed by the company over the time period for which the user is estimated to access the Roblox platform. You kind of you got to read that a few times, right? Resulted in an error where we previously identified a single performance obligation. Now what they're saying is this shouldn't just be a single performance obligation. This is now either multiple or this is a recurring performance obligation because it's tied to hosting. Upon further review, we concluded that we have a performance obligation to provide customers with the ability to acquire, use, and hold virtual items on the platform over the period for which the respective virtual items are available to the user. So if their obligation is actually uh, being extended, not shortened, you know, how does that compute with revenue increasing, not decreasing? If your obligation is actually longer, not shorter, then you should be recognizing less revenue, not more, right? Because you, you should be rec recognizing revenue when you perform the service, when you perform the work. So what, you know, to me, what this is saying is the work actually needs to be, be performed continuously over a variety of time, you know, a longer period of time than they'd previously accounted for, which means, again, to me, this would be a revenue adjustment down. So now they're going to be hiring more people and putting in more process. And then we may discover additional weaknesses in our system. It really doesn't make sense to me. Um, you know, th this is the results of this revenue through September jumped 70% to 613, where it was previously reported at 68% to 588. So it went up by 2%. It went up by 30, uh, by uh, $25 million. I don't get it. Um, and I'm diving into the, to the SEC filing and it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, I still think the company is strong, but uh, I think they need a better CFO. I don't know. Like, what's going on here, guys? You had to, you had to service the customer longer and recognize revenue over a longer period of time. Um, but then your revenue went up and not down. I mean, there's got to be something else that came up, and that was maybe one example of of the of the issue. Now, all of this is now resulted in them. Pushing the direct listing into March, direct listing, because they also did a fundraise. They raised over half a billion dollars, which was essentially what they were planning to raise from the IPO. They raised that at basically 4x the valuation they were planning to, to go public at uh, back in 2020. And now they're just doing the direct listing, which effectively gets them the same thing, right? It effectively allowed them to raise the money they were going to IPO at to, to fundraise, right? But they had, you know, 75% less dilution because they forex their valuation. And then they're going to get the liquidity from, from being a public company by doing a direct listing. But I don't think they, maybe they will. I don't think they're actually going to fundraise and do the direct listing. I think they're just going to 
uh, just do the direct listing and get the liquidity for their shareholders. But that is new, right? Historically, you actually weren't able to both fundraise and do direct listing. That was actually an update that the SEC and the New York Stock Exchange really trailblazed um, to to allow for both to happen, uh, a fundraise and a direct listing uh, to coincide with one another. That used to kind of just be reserved for the IPO. Despite what the bankers tell you, they're not happy about that rule change. So yeah, still a very strong company. But I like my title here, Roblox's money-making mistake. Say that a few times fast. Uh, okay, next juicy topic. We've got some fun topics this morning. Um, Australia. Oh, oh, Australia. If only I could visit Australia right now. I mean, you really got to give them credit. You know, if you read the tech, the, the tech and kind of uh, media perspective on this. I'll tell you right now, you're going to get the completely wrong perspective. And I've got a couple of them here we're going to go over. You know, I went on Bloomberg News in Australia. What do you make of this controversy and where this is headed in terms of regulation, not only in Australia, but just across the world? I think what your Australian commission has put together is is actually really fantastic. Um, I think they should go through with it if, you know, assuming uh, the law passes and, and gets made uh, into a bill. Um, I don't think Google, I think you should call their bluff. I don't think they will actually leave Australia. I think Facebook is pretty scared of this law as well. But when platforms become monopolies, which Google and Facebook clearly are, the monopolies take advantage of their suppliers, of producers, as we call them. That, in this case, would be the media companies. The media companies are squeezed. They've basically been put on the brink of bankruptcy here. To me, there's nothing wrong. I actually think it's a fantastic way to look at it to say the government is going to support media companies, the creators of all this information, to get their fair share of payments from the tech monopolies that have absolute leverage over the creators, as we have seen. So I hope that not only will Australia go through with this, I don't think Google and Facebook will actually pull out of the country and the continent for that matter. Okay, I got one of the two. I knew ultimately Google would not have it in them to see this through. How did I know that? Well, you know, um, it comes down to people. And at the end of the day, what kind of leader are you? Are you going to allow uh, your company to be, you know, pushed around effectively by the Australian government. And um, it goes back to managers being the CEO versus the founder being the CEO. Let's look at this clip. So this is from the House Judiciary Committee uh, when it was, it was at the end of the House Judiciary Committee, you know, when they were interviewing Sundar and Zuckerberg and, you know, all the tech monopoly CEOs. Uh, here it is. The only correction, uh, thanks, Mr. Chairman. Uh, there was a question earlier about uh, information uh, with respect to China. I just wanted to acknowledge on record that I recalled in 2009, we had a well-publicized uh, cyber attack originating there, which did ex exfiltrate some code from there. I just wanted to correct that Thank on you. record. Thank you, Mr. Pichai. The record will so reflect. So what happened there, that was Sundar saying, hey, hey, Chairman, actually, um, no, no, no. China did take code from us. And because they had asked Sundar, CEO of Google, um, hey, has, has, China, has, has China acted unfairly? Have they taken your source code? Have they taken your IP? And he said, no, not that I can recall. 
Then they asked the same thing to Zuckerberg and Zuckerberg was like, uh, yeah, actually, that's why we don't operate in China. And then that was Sundar saying, oh, you know what? I actually remember. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Back in 2009, they did steal our source code and we were pretty pissed about that. That's why we left the country. Is Australia taking the source code here? No. But the point is, Sundar does not have the leadership principles to enforce the will uh, that, and, and throw around the weight that Google has. Um, it's evidenced by him allowing a, uh, a union to form inside of Google. Completely ridiculous and a horrible mismanagement on Sundar's part. And it's the same reason why he whitewashes this stuff in front of the House Judiciary Committee and then retracts and corrects his statement. It, it's all part, it's, it's weakness as a leader. Um, it's why I knew that he would capitulate and come to the table uh, to negotiate with the media organizations in Australia, um, as I predicted on their Bloomberg Australia show. Zuckerberg's a different story. He's a completely different animal. He's a founder CEO. <sighs> Very tough to go toe to toe with those guys. Don't underestimate them. These manager CEOs, though, nah, you know, generally, um, they, they, they don't live up to what the founder CEOs are able to accomplish and, and how aggressively those founder CEOs can operate the business. I may have a little bit of bias uh, in my own shoes here, but um, I think we've seen that now proven true. The problem for Zuckerberg, and if we want to take a couple steps back and talk about what's actually happened here in Australia, is there was basically a law that was about to be passed in Australia which would force the tech monopolies, the content platform monopolies, namely Google and Facebook, to provide greater payments to have more structure around how the tech monopolies would pay for news, right? So basically, Google wasn't going to be able to have any news in its search results unless it was going to pay the piper, and the piper being the Australian uh, media organizations. Kind of a big deal, Google search with no news, right? Whether that's international news or domestic news, Google search in Australia could not have news unless it complied with this, what was about to be law. That bill was gaining traction. Looks like it was, it was you know, they were going to go through with it, Australia. Maybe they still do go through, through with it now, though, but I think, you know, it, it may not actually be necessary. We'll see. Anyway, why was this so important? Why was I a fan of this law going into effect? Now, for all the, for all the uh, tech and mainstream media alleged journalists that I'm about to show their coverage of this, I'm going to slow it down for everyone. Say it with me, real nice and slow. Okay, four syllables. Monopoly. Got it? That's the difference. That's why this isn't extortion of Google and Facebook. And that's why, as I made in my point on Bloomberg, you can't negotiate with a monopoly. It's an oxymoron, okay? When the monopoly has monopoly power, when the platform gets monopoly scale, what do they do? So I'm a broken record. They take advantage of their suppliers. They squeeze the suppliers. Who's the supplier in this scenario? The media companies. We've had Tim Kendall on the show. Uh, you know, he was in the, I mean, he was head of, monetization at Facebook, like employee 20 or something like that. He did that Netflix documentary all about um, 
you know, uh, uh, Facebook's algorithms and, um, and how they're kind of corrupting our brains and all these things. Anyway, we had him on the show. And what we were talking about is exactly this. The media organizations are beholden to Facebook and Google. More specifically, they are beholden to Facebook and Google's algorithm. The media organizations have been bankrupted. Their business model has been shot to smithereens. They have an unsustainable business model, which means that when you are beholden to the algorithm and when the algorithm at Facebook and Google, I mean, Tim Kendall was literally there tweaking this algorithm you know, many years ago and he's seen what kind of monster he created. Uh, and he's testified in front of the in front of the House and in front of Congress and 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 elsewhere globally about this problem is that the algorithm wants one thing. The algorithm wants engagement. And why does the algorithm want engagement? Because it's trained to maximize engagement at all costs. And the algorithm maximizes engagement because engagement maximizes what? Ad revenue. And that's the vicious cycle. And the media orgs. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what gets you the most engagement on Facebook and Google, that triggering, that, um, you know, that really uh, contentious, that really much of it fake news, um, which gets shared, which gets people reading, which gets people into a frenzy. And, you know, now you have the past, you know, however many years of American history kind of played out for you. Um and just the kind of echo chambers and all these things are all part of a derivative here that the algorithm and the media organizations are way too tightly coupled with one another, right? If your business model is unsustainable and you need every little ounce of ad revenue um, coming out of Facebook and Google, the monopolies that control how your content, your media is consumed, and the algorithm doesn't care if it's real news or fake news or incendiary or true or peaceful or incendiary or triggering, right? And it just says, give me engagement. You're going to write stories that, that accomplish that, right? Because your editor says, hey, write these stories or we go bankrupt and you get fired and then you don't have a job. What do you think is going to happen? So the whole point of this uh, regulation in Australia, which for some reason, I mean, should be expected, all these kind of tech and media pundits just, you know, right over their head, um, don't see is that you need to decouple the two. You can't have an independent, uh, unbiased, truthful media industry if their business model is unsustainable and they're tied at the hip to the to the Google and Facebook algorithm. Right? It just doesn't work. You need to help these organizations have some just. <laughs> independence, some uh, way to just, um, you know, have control over their own destiny. Right now, they don't have that. So that's what the Australian government was seeking to do here was to say, look, they have absolutely no leverage in negotiating with, say it with me again, real slow, a monopoly. If this was just a private business that wasn't a monopoly, it's a very different story. And a lot of this media stuff, which I'm going to cover here, I would agree with. But the difference is, these are, one more time, third time, last time I'll do this, a monopoly, okay? So people right over their head, just, it just somehow they just forgot that Google and Facebook are monopolies. Let's look at this. Let's look at some of the, some of this real stellar reporting. And I hate to do this because I love the guy, but he's on the wrong side here. Uh, first, 
First example is Ben Thompson. Guy's just not getting it on this. Google makes a deal with News Corp. And then, you know, he's making these memes uh, saying that, you know, the ACCC, this, this Australian law was just about the money. And, and like, there's something wrong with that. Right. And so what this legislation was trying to do was now just, you know, a cash grab basically for a oh, Rupert Murdoch. But Rupert Murdoch News Corp is one of, you know, there are a variety of different media organizations in Australia. This isn't this doesn't need to become a partisan thing. This doesn't need to be a, a Rupert Murdoch News Corp thing. Specifically, Google objected to provisions that it required it to pay on a pay per link basis, no matter where those links appeared. As I noted, the fact that Google has started funneling money to publishers in other countries shows how off-base the vast majority of reporting about this code has been. What this deal makes clear is that the Australian government and News Corp, which controls the majority of Australian media and which supports the current majority party, didn't actually care about those provisions either. So he updates his meme here. There's Google. And you guys have seen this meme. The, the astronaut with the gun to the other astronaut's head behind him. Wait, it's just about the cash, says Google. Other guy goes, yeah, always has been. And the gun is now this, this uh, you know, um, uh, law that was about to go into effect. The Australian government effectively threatened Google that it would impose completely unacceptable conditions on their product unless they paid up. Google has now paid up, and so the government is satisfied. Never mind that the pay up didn't go to the taxpayers of Australia. Rupert Murdoch is happy, so everyone is happy. Yeah, it's about the cash. Okay, <laughs> like what? What do we live in? Um, a society that just operates magically, and it's just pixie dust, and you just put pixie dust into the machine, and then the machine operates, and everyone gets paid, and just life goes on, right? Money matters. Okay, Google and Facebook—do they care about money? Yeah, they care about money. That's why they didn't like this bill because it was going to force them to pay money. They didn't get to control. The money flows to the media organizations. So, so the Australian government is the bad guy because they're helping the media organizations get more money. And, and now this is, you know, uh, um, some kind of conspiracy theory here with Rupert Murdoch. You don't have independent journalism, whether it's Rupert Murdoch or Bloomberg News Australia, which I was on, or any of these groups, when they are tethered to the hip of the tech monopoly. And so all this bill did was help give a little bit of leverage, yes, to get money for the content creators who have been squeezed and put on the brink of oblivion, on the brink of bankruptcy, and can't have any independent journalism as a result. So I actually think this will help reduce fake news. I actually think this will help improve the objectivism of media organizations. I actually think this will help maybe not get it back to where it was 20 years ago when, you know, media organizations were making a lot of money. When when media organizations are making a lot of money, they can have journalistic standards. When you don't make money and you're just struggling to survive, journalistic standards, as we have seen, get thrown out the window. It's not a partisan thing. It's just how the world works when you don't make money. You're in survival mode. You can't have journalistic standards survival mode. You got to have the lights, you know, you got to keep the lights on. You got to keep people paychecks going through even though you've had years of massive layoffs and so on and so forth. So now here's the predicament. 
Actually, let me show you one other thing. Australia kerfuffle wins Facebook friends, okay, says the information. Commentary today and yesterday supported Facebook's decision to block news content in Australia rather than give in to the proposed Australian news code governing how much internet firms pay for the content. While Facebook's stance makes perfect sense and local publishers may well regret losing access to the social media's network audience, something in the debate seems a little off. Oh, really? Then they kind of make this point. Some coverage suggested that the Australian news code was the equivalent of an attempted shakedown of Google and Facebook. That's hilarious. That's right. It is hilarious. Australia's GDP in 2019 was $1.4 trillion, which is the same as Google's current market cap. In no world we live in does Australia have the leverage to shake down either Facebook or Google. Okay, that's some better balanced reporting. But then they, you know, they do them, they shoot themselves in the foot again. Some pundits probably correctly see the hand of Rupert Murdoch in this. The Australian government has managed the seemingly impossible, turned Facebook into a sympathetic creature for many tech pundits. Who are these tech pundits that magically are on Facebook's side? Let's look at some of these. TechDirt.com. The bizarre reaction to Facebook's decision to get out of the news business in Australia. And, and they're pro-Facebook doing this. Um, yeah. Do you know what TechDirt.com is? Because I don't. What's the other one? Platformer.news. I, you know, I like the name, but have never heard of this site ever before. Facebook calls, Austri- calls Australia's bluff. Who are these Oh, these look at all these tech pundits from sites that no one has literally ever heard of correctly saying that, you know, Facebook is, is doing the right thing. Facebook and what Zuckerberg is doing strategically for Facebook is the right decision. It's what you do when a union crops up in your company and Walmart sees a union in a store. When Instacart saw a union pop up in, in one or a couple of its stores, what did they do? They shut the whole thing down. Okay. This is the same kind of thing. When you see a union crop up in uh, Australia called this uh, you know, platform inquiry, this, this law that they're going after here, what do you do? You shut down Australia. Seems a little drastic, but that actually strategically is the right move from a business decision. Problem for Zuckerberg here is this thing called optics and the fact that Google is weak doesn't make Facebook look good in Australia. They are going to ram this home about, you know, Facebook already has a lot of bad press. Tech monopolies already have a lot of bad press. This is going to be really bad for Facebook in Australia. Really bad. If Google and Facebook had a unified front, okay, great decision. They should have, and I said this on on the Bloomberg interview, they should have both walked away from Australia That would have called Australia's bluff, but you know, it was brinkmanship and Google blinked and Facebook didn't, but because they are divided and Google has come to the table, puts Facebook in a very precarious position, which I think is going to net network against them because what it's going to do is just polarize um, an already very exacerbated situation that, you know, Facebook is evil. Tech monopolies are evil. And, um, they're, you know, you want to talk about the money. <laughs> you know, you want to talk about the money. Um, look no further than, when, than what Facebook is doing, right? So, net, net, um, 
I think that is Zuckerberg's big kind of strategic oversight here is that Google wasn't in the boat with them. And now because they're divided, it puts Facebook out on an island, not a very hot island, not much breeze on that island, not much water on that island. I would not want to be on that island right now. Net net, Facebook probably will capitulate thanks to Sundar. Uh, so, and then what this will do and why this is so important is this will um, effectively provide a playbook to other countries around the world to how to get leverage on content platforms specifically, but more broadly, tech monopolies. And when you target the producer, when you target the supplier, when you provide protections for producers, for creators, for sellers on Amazon, man, that's the Achilles heel for these platforms. That's what they squeeze when they get to monopoly status. It's not about the consumer. It's about the suppliers. Australia's figured that out. Poland has figured that out. The EU is, you know, crawling to figure that out. The U.S. is, you know, they're on Mars trying to figure this one out. Uh, they just went with the rover Perseverance. They're just over chilling on Mars. They have no idea what's going on. But, you know, other countries are figuring it out. So, power to them. Maybe some U.S. states will figure it out. Hmm, that'd be interesting, right? Um, okay. That's a fun one, Australia. Good job, Australia. Um, <laughs> I forgot about Russia. You know, I know who else is figuring it out. Russia's figuring it out. Putin doesn't like to be censored. Putin likes to do the censoring. You censor, you censor Putin, Putin censors you. Uh, as we have seen, months after Twitter, Twitter shadow bans the Russian Times, uh, you know, which is uh, the media org tied to the hip of, of the Russian government, Putin signs law to fine and block social media giants that censor Russian media sources. Net, net, this is a good thing. We have seen, we had Peter uh, Saddington on the show, big crypto guy, tech entrepreneur. He had two crypto channels on YouTube with, you know, collectively over 100,000 subscribers wiped off of YouTube. And he's not alone. The entire crypto community has seen for years, you know, I've talked for years that tech, you know, the tech monopolies, and their thought policing and their information fascism has been going on for years. This isn't a recent thing. And the crypto community has really felt the brunt of that for a long time. This was like two years ago where his, his channels were just kicked off of YouTube. It's a really great interview. Highly suggest you go listen to it. Crypto community has, has nothing to do with COVID origination or any of these other hot button topics these days or, you know, Atlas uh, and what Atlas signifies here. But um it's crypto. But no, YouTube, you know, didn't really like that. And when his channels were getting a lot of traction, um, you know, getting into the over, you know, six figure kind of subscriber base, put their thumb down on him and boom, gone. Um, you know, will that happen to this show? Probably eventually. Um, which is why if you want to see, you know, the real juice, some of we've already had to edit proactively some of our stuff. Uh, on YouTube. It's just too hot for TV, even though this isn't really that contentious of a show. You know, if you really want to go do uh, us a service, um, go actually on Rumble, uh, go on Odyssey. We're moving all of our stuff over to Library. Actually, Peter recommended it to us. Go check out Library um, and Odyssey. And so we are actively moving our content um, elsewhere 
and, and, and kind of preparing for the day when, you know, um, the thought police don't like what we have to say, which is inevitable. We all just need to recognize that. Uh, um, it's, it's a very sad time of kind of Orwellian content information censorship that we live in. Thanks to, okay, fourth time, say it with me slow, monopolies. Um, so Russia's picking up on this. And, uh, you know, another favorite topic here, Twitter. Um, I don't know, just the, the media loves to kind of say, oh my God, look at how good, look at how well Twitter is doing. Um, actually, there's a bunch of articles that, you know, when they were looking at Twitter's uh, fourth quarter earnings, you know, they said, wow, look, they had a million more actively engaged users. It was like from 35 to 36 million or something from Q3 to Q4 of 2020. Wow, look at that engagement growth. That's pathetic. Um, and, and, you know, and then they say, and they grew their, their engagement and they kicked off President Trump, their most popular creator on Twitter you know, kind of proving that they can still have engagement growth while kicking off their most popular creator. What they failed to connect the dots on is that the Q4 ends December 31st, 2020. They kicked Trump off in January. Come on, come on, work with me here. Journalists, like, come on, just dates. Um, anyway, so Twitter... Fiscal, uh, you know, for their 2020 year, okay, this company is nowhere near tech monopoly status. This company is not in a good position. This company was not in a good position before having kicked off um, their biggest and most popular users, plural. It didn't, it just started with Trump and it's been going on for years, but, you know, they really kicked it into high gear um, and have continued. They kicked off like RFK Jr. Um, I don't even know politically where he stands, but he was talking about vaccine stuff. You can't talk about vaccine stuff. Oh boy. Um, yeah, he's gone. A bunch of people are gone. Just rewriting history. We're literally living in 1984. Did everyone know that two plus two equals five? Because if you didn't know that, I suggest that everyone really learn that quick. Otherwise, you may be in trouble. So, what's going on with Twitter here? <laughs> it just gets me fired up. We delivered record revenue. Up 28% year over year. This is Q4. Okay, let's look at the full 2020 numbers. 2020, you look at Facebook, you look at Google, you look at any of these other content, digital content, social media platforms, their numbers are through the roof. Twitch, we've been covering, right? Through the roof. No one else had anything else to do in 2020 but be on social media. So how much more money did, uh, did Twitter make? It was up 7% year over year. How does that compare to 2019? Mm, great question. Uh, here's their press release from a year ago. 2019 revenue was 3.46 billion, an increase of 14% year over year. Interesting. So it's slowing. Um, but but everyone's saying, look at look at look at how well Twitter's doing. 2020 costs and expenses totaled 3.69 billion. This is back to 2020. An increase of 19% year over year. 7% revenue growth, 19% cost growth. They made $27 million in operating income. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe their expenses were going down from 2019. No, actually, they weren't going down. Um, 2019 costs and expenses totaled $3.09 billion, an increase of 19% year over year. So, 
They've kept their cost expense growth the same. It's grown at 19% year over year in 2019 compared to 2018 and in 2020 compared to 2019. Yet their revenue growth was 14% year over year from 2019 to 2018 and 7% growth from 2020 to 2019. And this was before they started to ban all of their most popular users. Yes, I am short on Twitter and I am not bullish on their aspirations. Now, the thing that can save Twitter is the next topic, and that is the COVID bubble. We could call this a variety of names. We could call this the Rona bubble, or as Dave Portnoy would probably say, the, the vid bubble. Um, but we are in a bubble, gang. Okay? We are in a bubble. Um, this is not normal, what's going on. Okay? Uh, let's look at how Platt's doing. Platt's up just a cool 11.5%. Um, in the past six weeks, in in 2021, it's on fire. Uh, since inception, it's up 98% since May of 2019. Uh, I mean, I mean, look, look at this chart. It's not normal. Nothing's normal. But we're in a bubble. And if you don't believe me, let's believe another. She may have a little bit bigger reputation than I do. This is uh, Kathy Wood. She does these, um, you know, uh, uh, well-reputed ETF creator and manufacturer. And here's her interview. We don't want profits now. We want them to invest aggressively because we're moving into many winner-take-most markets. Winner-take-most. Good call, Kathy. I would agree. Autonomous taxi world is a very good example of that. That is why our confidence in Tesla, going back to the largest position in our portfolio, is so high. I'm going to ask you about more stocks in just a moment. You spoke of a lot of the stocks in the in the the flagship fund as having a longer runway than maybe you know some would suggest the the pandemic would would would, would say. It seems undeniable to me, though, that you must be thinking about the impact of higher rates on the kinds of stocks that have been tried and true winners for you all throughout, whether it's the Signature Fund, the FinTech Innovation Fund, and even other areas of the ETFs that you have. Are you worried that as rates go up, those stocks could come down? What he's getting at is rates going up. That means the Fed interest rates going up. You could also layer into that quantitative easing, easing versus quantitative tightening. It's another kind of topic here of just money flow uh, into the system or, or out of the system. What's supposed to be the Fed's primary, primary kind of absolute goal is to keep inflation, you know, under 3%. And if you look at the stock market, you look at the housing market, you look at a lot of different markets, many of them, you know, for more affluent, um, you know, individuals that have cash. That can benefit from this just insane influx of cash into the system. We had Jim Rickards on the show a few weeks ago talking about a lot of this. Eventually, this this kind of monetary thinking of just you know of just flushing more money into the system as a way to produce GDP gains and all this stuff. You know, it there there's a point of diminishing return is is one of the points Jim made, and then after a certain while, all you're doing is just now causing hyperinflation. So what this guy on CNBC is getting at, um, Scott, uh, I think is his name, 
is that if we see inflation, does that mean that then the price of equity stocks goes down? What do you think about that, Kathy? Right? Because if the Fed starts to see inflation, they should stop injecting more money into the into the system, right? Because that helps cause inflation. And they should then start to raise interest rates, right? So if you raise interest rates, money is more expensive and you know, therefore hopefully can curtail inflation. Those are kind of the classical mechanisms that they have. So here's what she has to say. Uh well, I, I do believe if rates were to take a sharp turn up, uh, that we would uh, we would see a valuation reset, and our portfolios would uh, would be um, prime candidates for that valuation reset. Of course, that means Tesla's her 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 baby. Um, you know that that the the multiples, and then she goes on to talk about multiples and PE multiples and all these things. At some point. I don't know when the bubble is going to have a reckoning. I don't, I'm not saying it's going to be what happened 20 years ago with, you know, the, the, the dot-com bubble and all these kinds. I can't, I can't predict the future like that. Okay. What I can tell you is we're certainly seeing signs of inflation. Just look at the equities markets. Look at, uh, you know, what's going on with the home market, all these other areas. And if you're starting to see inflation, can the Fed sustain what it's been doing? I mean, theoretically, the Fed can do whatever it wants, um, but will it? And then what she's saying is if the Fed starts to raise rates, she says drastically, I think the moment the Fed starts to signal that they could be raising rates, Janet Yellen just actually today came out and said that they're not raising rates. They're just going to keep on keeping on, which keeps the cycle going until potentially, you know, some other kind of calamity happens. But you're seeing these spike ups, right? You're seeing... Um, just a lot of irregularities in the market. We've covered the GameStop stuff, the, 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 the silver shortage, Elon saying, Hey guys, you know, put money into crypto. Cause I'm not sure if I'm okay with everything that's going on. That's Elon, right? Elon saying, yeah, we may also put money into gold. He's a smart guy. Smart people are diversifying their money outside of just stocks and equities. Okay. Jim Rickards may not love crypto. Fine. Jim Rickards, you know what Jim Rickards loves? Gold uh, and, and, and other kind of physical hard assets like real estate and these kinds of things. So everyone can make up their own opinion, but we're seeing a bubble uh, in my opinion and more evidence of just all the, the wackiness that's going on. I mean, look at this China box office, the box office hits huge $775 million holiday weekend. China's open. China's popping off. Almost a billion dollar holiday weekend. Meanwhile, the United States and the rest of the world is shut down. For those conversations, you got to go over to our Rumble. Can't talk about that stuff on YouTube. In closing, though, going back to Tesla, Kathy talks about Tesla. And, you know, some people have been asking, is Tesla a platform? And the answer today is no. But that doesn't mean that it won't eventually become a platform. There's a couple of cool things here with Tesla that I'm going to touch on. One, Elon, this guy knows platforms better than anyone on the planet. Literally co-founder of PayPal. Um, the guy understands how platforms work intimately well. Not only has he talked about potentially, you know, or not only are there kind of platform aspirations for Tesla, we're also seeing the potential for uh, 
a Tesla coin, or as as Elon is talking about it, a Mars coin. If I do that, let's see. Yep, there will definitely be a Mars coin. So we had Peter Saddington on the show. Um, great interview. You know, talking about what's going on with all these altcoins. So Elon, you know, talking about here a Mars coin, which uh, I think would get some people pretty amped. What are the platform dynamics for for Tesla, or could could be for Tesla? A couple things. And and Kathy was alluding to this in her interview, just the growth that she sees for Tesla and the opportunity for Tesla. When you have autonomy, you know, it starts to enable all these different mobility services to be built on top of the car. And this is where I think some platform dynamics could come out of this. This is why the news about Ford partnering with Google was so unfortunate to see because, you know, there is a huge platform opportunity for mobility services to be built on top of the connected vehicle. It doesn't even have to be the autonomous vehicle. You know, there are a trillion dollars worth of services going into the vehicle every year, just in the United States. Okay. Uh, insurance, gas, uh, uh, maintenance and repair. There's a whole, you know, uh, a Turo and get around, right? You can rent your car out like Airbnb getting packages delivered to the trunk of your car. There are literally a trillion dollars. I don't think many people understand how large the car industry is. A trillion dollars worth of services going in and into the vehicle every year. And so if you can allow for all these connected services to interface with a development platform, for example, Turo and get around right now, the process is very clunky. If you want to rent your car, you know, you got to have like a lockbox or, you know, how do you, how do you allow a stranger into your car, give them the key, you know, but you want to keep the car locked? That transfer process is very difficult. Every OEM has their own different app for, you know, a digital remote unlock and lock of the car and all these things. You know, it's not easy. There's no common standard protocol. There's no common standard development platform uh, for all those services to be built on at scale. You know, Turo and GetAround don't want to build 10 different apps. 10 different integrations into uh, 10 different connected vehicle APIs for all the different OEMs. It's just not sustainable. You know, the, the big thing that you're seeing with autonomy to kind of take that development platform forward, which is where Tesla is very well positioned, is when you, you understand that cars on the road, 97% of that time, it's actually idle. 97% of the time that you own a car, or that you use your car, you actually only use your car on average 3% of the time. 97% of that time is idle, it's sitting in your garage or outside your house or whatever it is, you're not using it. And so that's the whole idea here. Once now the car is autonomous, what's going to happen to car ownership, right? We already started to see this in urban environments with Uber and Lyft and ride sharing, and you're seeing it with car rentals with Turo and Get Around and these kinds of things, right? But the whole, um, the whole dynamic of car ownership, when you have now fleets of autonomous vehicles and the kind of platform models that can, that can then be layered in on top of that, you know, I think that's one of the really exciting areas where Tesla's platform model could really come to fruition, both in, in twofold, from a connected connectivity standpoint, pre-autonomy, just all the connected services that can come on top. Challenge for Tesla is they just don't have enough scale, even at the number of cars they're producing today, 
to justify, you know, entire businesses to be built solely on top of Tesla's kind of operating system development platform. Maybe when they, you know, as they ramp production or as they get to autonomy, that could change. You know, autonomy changes a lot of the unit economics in those models pretty substantially, as, as you might imagine. Um, but autonomy is still a little bit of a ways off here when we're at kind of level four, like fully autonomous, um, you know, state. But Tesla's certainly on its way. Elon understands platform models better than just about anyone. And the tech the, the connectivity inside of the, in, inside of the Tesla and the autonomy progress that they're making really put them in a very advantageous way that maybe even if Tesla can't substantiate, it, you know, the platform model solely on the, their own fleet of vehicles, um, you know, maybe they could actually open up that development platform to other OEMs to then piggyback on top of. We'll see multiple ways that this thing could get sliced up. But now that you have Google, um, with with Android Auto in a number of these OEMs, you know this is really going to be the next battle in the world of cars. It's going to be the battle for the development platform. It's going to be the battle for the operating system that all the apps are built on top of to interface with these connected vehicles and then eventually these autonomous vehicles. And that is not a battle about Ford and Toyota and these OEMs, many of whom have have bent the knee to the tech monopolies, Ford most recently with Google and Android Auto. But this is a battle now between the tech players, the Teslas, the Googles, Apple, and Amazon's also trying to get in there. That's the next battle for the next five, 10 years in automotive. It's not just really autonomy. Autonomy is kind of just eventually will become a commodity. It's a killer app. It's a killer piece of utility software. That's not the platform. Autonomy is an enabler for the platform model to come to fruition, but it's not the be-all, end-all of the platform model. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you very much for joining us, and I'll talk to you soon.